my band and that was fun. I uh, had Steve Forrest on bass in, in place of the, the bass player I, I normally use. And I mean, you know, what a great sub. <laughs> I mean, that Steve is subbing is, that was fun. That was really fun. It was, uh, it's fun to get out and play and, and uh, just to sort of be creative in real time. There wasn't an audience, but still, just to be able just to be able to do it, create some interesting, interesting segues and, you know, sit on a groove and all that stuff. It was fun. Y'all sounded amazing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Several tunes. Um, how did you do the audio for that show? The audio was great. Yeah, they, uh, um, they mixed it, you know, the same way they would mix, the same way they would mix live. You know, there's a guy back there mixing live and I guess they just, they just ran the audio to uh, I, I probably in a, a more elaborate version of what I'm doing now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, um, I have a pretty, it's pretty cool. It's just a little two channel USB mixer and, uh, but it's powered. I mean, the USB is not enough to power the mixer, but it's a little Alesis uh, four channel. They call it four channel. It's two bona fide channels and then two uh, stereo inputs that they call two more channels. But it's like, you know, I can, the mic sounds good and, you know, you can run keys through it if you need to play live and, and, and not have, not have the microphone do what, you know, microphones do computer yeah. microphones. They, they compress and then they let go and then they can, and you know that whole thing you know what i'm talking about yes yeah well um it did the show sounded great it was a relief to see everybody and I I, I hope, uh, rudy's is doing okay yeah they're, they're trying to, they're trying to find a way to stay open you know um i guess that's one thing they've been trying to do is do virtual concerts and let people donate and uh i did one maybe two weeks ago with my brothers and then uh and then last night I did one with my band. We're talking about, you know, doing that again. Cause boy, if I could be a part of them staying open, I'd I'd love to. And then it gives us a chance to play and you know, music tends to bring out the best in people. One of the few things that brings out the best in people and even at a even at this sort of really divisive tribal time, music still brings out the the best in us when we start enjoying music seldom, you know, are we debating politics or religion or income and status and all that stuff that divides us? Music is just instant. It's an instant bringing together. So. I totally agree. Yeah. I, I spent a couple of hours yesterday just kind of looking at your, going through your website mm -hmm. and just checking out everything you got on there. You're, you've got, um, you got a blog. I was reading your blog and um, I, I watched your TED talk. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. That was fun. That the TED talk was really fun because I like, I, I knew what they were, but I didn't really know what the requirements were. So um, um, I was talking and they were the, uh, the, person that was talking to me about it said they really like things that solve problems. So that helped. And, um, and then I started looking at some other Ted talks just for examples. And I just learned a, I just learned a bunch, 
you know, uh, there was a there was a lady who was uh, she'd been curing people with type two diabetes without medic medication, and she was showing how the you know the medication and the instructions actually make it worse. And then I learned a bunch about coffee. I learned about posture. <laughs> I learned about a bunch of just a bunch of things. There's a lot of smart people out there. And the TED Talks are good in that they they sort of accent they sort of accent the uh, uh, the cerebral and the sensible, and it sort of puts the accent there at a time where we really need it. Very seldom does somebody do a TED Talk, and it's really um, it's a subject that's hyper debatable after they finish they do it and you sort of take into consideration that they're an expert on it because they wouldn't be there if they weren't and it seems to be a pretty respected forum even if the person says something and you don't like you know 100 percent. you at least know that person is knowledgeable of, of what they're talking about as opposed to if you're just listening to a politician or whatever and it just Sometimes it just feels partisan already. Even if they're an expert, it feels like a partisan expert. Yeah. And I, I liked I liked that about that whole TED, the whole well, it was a TEDx, which is kind of a local TED talk. The TED talks are the the Warren Buffett's and the, you know, and the uh, uh Paul Allen's and that kind of thing. But man, it was it was fun. Mine was in Memphis. Okay. And, uh, there were other lots of other smart knowledgeable people and it's a it's a there's a better word than fun but for lack of a better word it's a fun environment to be in that circle of uh knowledgeable respected thinkers yes we just we just sort of need more of that and not not just not just that we need more knowledgeable people but we need more people who can speak on something and people respect what, what they're saying. Cause that's what we're lacking the most right now. There's lots of knowledgeable people, but we're so tribal. It's hard for people to be reasoned with. Like even there's some things that you just know, you just know they're wrong, but because they fall on your side of the aisle, you condone it or either you know it's right, but because it's not on your side of the aisle, the person who did the right thing, you can't go with them. So you, and it's where the, I was saying the other day, the only thing, the only thing that can kill a democracy are people that can't be reasoned with, right? You can't, you can't uh, effectively lead, legislate, uh, control people that can't be reasoned with. Um, same thing. Same thing with with politicians. Um, unless unless they adhere to the rules of government, we're just in trouble. I mean, like right now, we got it. It almost looks like Congress has no ability for oversight. Right. It's just, and that's there's some fault. I mean, there's some fault to go all over the place. I mean, sometimes the, sometimes the, I see how the oversight can look just purely political, but by the same token, right? What, which president welcomed oversight, right? Which president went, you know what? You're probably right. 
come on in, investigate me, right? Nobody has ever done that before, but seldom have we had a president that sort of just treats, treats the, uh, treats the subpoena like junk mail. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, subpoena, I don't have to do that. Man. <laughs> Take me to the Supreme Court. It'll be about a year. <laughs> For real. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's not to say that everything he's done is wrong. Is it everything he's done hasn't been wrong? That's, that's not the point that I'm making. I'm just saying when, when uh, Congress can't perform that basic duty of oversight, our democracy is in trouble, especially at a time where just generally person to person, uh, the people can't talk to each other. Too many of us, not all of us, not yeah. all of us. Too many of us can't have a conversation. And if the people can't have a conversation, they elect people that don't want to have a conversation, right? Because if you don't like Donald Trump, if you're one of the people that don't, you got to remind yourself that he didn't get there by himself. <laughs> like he didn't vote himself in. So right. the problems say, if you don't like Nancy Pelosi, she had votes. She's had votes for years. So the problems that we blame on politicians, we're partially right, but they're there because of us. Yes. They're there because of the collective us and we need to work on the collective us. So when I have, I have conversations with people that don't agree with me on things. And, and I, what I try to do is when we finish, I mean, they have a different background than me. They got different history. They had different parents. Of course, they don't think like me. But what I try to remind them of after we're done is hopefully you don't think of me as an enemy because we didn't vote for the same person, right? Like hopefully if you see me broke down on the side of the road, you're not going to drive past me because we voted for different people or because you know, we're in different parties or we're different religions or different colors. Hopefully that stuff, because if we, if, if at the end of the conversation there's more respect than before the conversation started, that's what we need more of. There's always going to be people on different sides of the aisle, but right now the side of the aisle oftentimes determines whether we respect that person or not. Right, like everybody on the other side of the aisle is not racist, and not everybody on this side of the aisle is itching for an abortion. Right? <laughs> like, it's wow. not. Yeah, but it, it takes it takes um. It just it takes a bit of empathy. It takes some knowledge. It takes some compassion to be able to think with some nuance. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's between like between build that wall and and social justice there's like a whole lot of places for us to for yeah. us to agree i totally agree with you um yeah I, I heard one time somebody quoted this is a quote i don't know who said this but that everyone is a genius at something a, there's something they know a whole lot about mm -hmm. yeah when i started thinking about people that way you know i started uh, respecting people more realizing yeah that's a, i mean that's a that's a good thing to remember. The other thing is that people are a genius from their point of view, right? From your point of view, like your sight is 2020 and your knowledge is immense from where you sit, but perspective is largely a choice, mm -hmm. right? I mean, perspective is large perception. I'm saying perception is largely a choice and people have a right to their choices. 
The challenge is, is for us to, is for us to learn something from each other's perspective. And the good, like the good thing about music is what makes us better at music makes us better people. Like there's no, there's no downside of music. There's not, there's no downside. If you practice, that's good. If you just listen because you enjoy it, that's good. If you play with other musicians, even if you're not good at it, that's good. It brings out the best part of you. It's being creative. Oops. <laughs> See, I'm talking with my ears. I pulled my ears up. Talking with my hands, I mean. But nobody learns to play music to hurt somebody, right? We, it brings out, it br- express, being creative is, is our best. That's our best side. Now, the mu- music business is a different that's a different set of circumstances. Lots of downsides to the music business. But um, music, if we, if we applied ourselves to life like we apply ourselves to music, we'd be a lot better. So I, when I talk to young people, you just heard me turn this keyboard on, I'll remind them that like, like I'll play this. Uh, uh, Right? And then I'll tell them, shortening it up, I, these are all the notes to the national anthem. It's like every, all the notes of the national anthem, but it's not music. It's a pile of notes until we intelligently put spaces between the notes. Music is not just notes. Music is notes plus the intelligent use of space. So life is the same way. Life is not just a pile of facts. Right, so we have conversation and we argue back and forth about facts. Oftentimes our facts are accurate, but between that person and this person, there's not an intelligent use of space. There's just a competition of facts, which is the good part about music is that it doesn't create winners and losers. It's just either you, the worst that can happen is you didn't like the song, right? But nobody's heard, it just wasn't your thing. Right. But when we have conversations, we think more in terms of competition. Like, especially if the person doesn't think like you, you're trying to get them to think more like you. He's trying to get you to think more like them. And even though there's good things to get from competition, the downside of competition is somebody's got to lose. Nobody wants to volunteer to be the loser for the greater cause, right? <laughs> right. And that's the, that's the challenge of not letting your conversation uh, descend into competition. If you think about it in terms of music, all music is like these notes, they're unrelated until we make them relate with rhythm and harmony. We can make them relate. Well, in music, we do it with rhythm and harmony off the instrument when it's ide- when ideas replace notes, right? When ideas play- replace notes, the, 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 Order, the thing that makes things relate, like rhythm makes things unrelatable relate. I, I always, like if I'm talking in front of the class, I'll like drop a chair and then I'll cough, drop, cough, drop, cough, drop, cough, drop, cough, drop, drop, cough. And two things that are unrelated relate suddenly with rhythm. In news, in off the instrument, when it's ideas, different backgrounds, different, we do it with respect. Respect makes unrelated things relate because if that person that doesn't think like you feels like you respect where they're coming from and they feel like they're being heard. Like if I make their point before I make my point, then at the end of it, 
if we walk away and neither one of us thinks any more like the other, there's a little bit more respect in the world. And there it is. And that's what music is. Music, music is having things, finding a context for both things to exist. That's good for everybody. Right. And if we could remember that piece, just that piece. So we think differently. Right. But hopefully, hopefully you'll help me if I need help. I don't think you're unreasonable. I don't think you're a bad person. I understand where you're coming from, from where you sit. I can't expect you to think like me. I came from where I came from. You come from where you come from. But, you know, we shake hands or, you know, touch elbows now. Because, yeah, we're both American. I know you want what's best for the country. I know you want it because what you just said, and you know that I want it. And because of that, we're not enemies. If we can remind each other of that, it becomes hard for the other person, no matter how combative they are, to have that one-sided fight if I'm telling you that I understand where you come from and, and, I, re- and I respect you for saying it. Yeah, I think you said um, that you were, in your TED Talk, I believe, I heard you mm-hmm. say you compared like, playing music in a band to uh, co- you know, the cooperation and the listening to each other. Yes. Playing in an ensemble requires. Mm-hmm. Um, would would be the way that the ideal way for all of us to treat each other. Yeah, well, the, the way that I see it is uh, like if you played, if if you're a musician, everybody knows, especially if you improvise, like you know that great feeling if you've ever been a part of a good jam session. Like there's just nothing better, especially if if the people are good. What makes a jam session good is just that innate cooperation. Right. And somebody steps back and lets somebody else speak. And then, you know, they play a theme and then you join in on that theme. And and then that person doesn't like recognizes when they played long enough and they step back and somebody else steps forward and everybody's doing what they're good at for the benefit of everybody. Well, life, the way that I see it, life is just a jam session of ideas. It's not notes in life. It's ideas. But it's it's. It's a constant idea improvisation, but you make it work the same way, right? If I have a point and it's my time to speak, I have to have a feel for when I've been there long enough. I can't just keep going and keep going and keep going. And then I got to step back and leave some room for another person to speak. Even if like, even when you play a good instrument, you play great. You can't play all the time. Right, you got to leave some room for some other people to play. It's always life is always about the intelligent use of space. That's what turns a pile of notes into music. That's what turns a collision of ideas and perspectives into conversation. Is the intelligent use of space and and there's like space. All you can do is feel it. You can't see it. You just have to have a feel for it because space is just. You have to have a feel for it. Like when, if we're talking in the same room, I have to have a feel for when I'm standing too close, right? I could be as knowledgeable as I want to, but if I'm like eight inches from your face, I'm just too close. Space matters. And, and we, uh, uh, we succeed or we fail based off of what we're putting in the space between, between us. Right. The, is it the intelligent use of space? Uh, are we trying to find context between our things, a.k.a. making music? 
or are we trying to win the event, a.k.a. competition? Right. It's easy for one to descend into the other because they're related, but they're not the same, which is why I don't, I don't really, generally, I don't like music competitions, right? Because music is not really created to create winners and losers, right? Like if you're a singer, what I always say is if you sing, uh, a good singer shows you what they can do with their voice on a song, but a great singer shows you what a great song it is with their voice. Oh, it's different. Yeah, a great singer shows you what, like when Luther sings the, the Carpenter's tune, don't you remember? That's when I, that's a, what a love song that is. I didn't recognize it until he sang it. He brought out the love song of those lyrics, same lyrics, but, but he showed you what a great song it is with Superstar, his voice. Right? Superstar, okay. yes. Yeah, yes, okay. and that, that in turn showed you what a great singer he was. Now, Luther may or may not have won a vocal competition. And truthfully, we have too many singers these days that sing to show you what they can do. Right. You'll even hear a lot of times you'll hear young singers before the other young singer goes on their stage. They'll say, yeah, go do your thing. Right. Well, singing is not just going and doing your thing. Singing is whatever it requires. If you're a background vocalist, then it requires that you sing like the other singers. If you're the lead singer, it requires that you sing the lyrics in a way that honors the person who who wrote the lyrics. Like um, one of my favorite stories. I don't know how I got on this subject, but one of my favorite stories is from my brother, Victor, who, who uh, he, well, when school is in session, he teaches for a week out of each month at the Berkeley School of Music in the electric bass department. And they were doing a tribute to uh, Victor and they, the music students were playing all of his music. <laughs> I keep on the <laughs> <laughs> the music students were doing a tribute to Victor's music. And, and like a lot of young singers, you hear a lot of very talented vocal acrobatics. And Victor told them, you know, he said, wow, I really appreciate the tribute. But he reminded them, he said, if you're a vocalist and you're singing somebody else's music, you owe it to the composer to sing their melody. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, that's yeah. just an... I remember B.G. Adair talking about that um, at a class at National Jazz Workshop. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to play standards, you must know the melody. And not right. only that, you know, she's like, you know, you know the words, too. Right. Yeah. Well, no doubt about it. It's the same way. If, if, if you get an acting job and they give you a script, they don't give you a script and go, show me what you can do with these words. <laughs> they want to hear these words, right? They yeah. want to hear you put yourself into these words right here. They don't want you to create your own unless it's an improv class. That's something different. So it's life, going back to what I was saying before, life is like a jam session of ideas. And the same way that you make a jam session work by listening, by not playing too long, by uh, being aware of what everybody else is doing and that cooperation, it's the same thing off the instrument when the notes turn to ideas and there's different ideas and different religions and different backgrounds and different histories and different cultures. That in the same way to play music, you have to have more than good intentions, 
right? There's some certain you need to you need to know the difference between a C major and a C minor, or the difference between a C or F or a G. There's a a basic foundation of knowledge before you can go and start using your instincts. Well, the same thing off the instrument, it pays to know some things about culture, to know some things about history, to know some things about current events, to know some things about religions other than yours, to know some things about financial status other than yours. Then you have a background of things uh, to speak to somebody else about because a lot of times things go wrong not because a person's intentions are bad. I'll give you a good example. Like um, my first marriage where uh, we had two kids, right? Two, two boys. And I loved everything about what pregnancy did to my wife, right? It's just like the way that it shifts the center of balance and the, the skin gets rosier and the hair gets longer. A girl gets girlier as far as, as, far as I'm concerned. Love everything. So I saw a woman and I was much younger. And I remember, uh, again, me liking everything about pregnancy. I asked her when she was due, right? And she wasn't pregnant. That's on me, right? My intentions are good. My intentions are good. I think pregnancy makes a woman as beautiful as can be. But that's on me, right? So I learned in real time what not to do, right? You don't assume somebody's pregnant and like painfully in my memory, I even maybe see my hand on her belly, right? I hope that I didn't do that. I hope that I'm remembering that wrong. But my point, that's a great example of your intentions being good is not enough, right? Yeah. The same way your intentions may be good in a jam session, but if you don't know how to play, Right. If you don't know what sharp and flat is and and rushing and dragging is, then your good intentions are kind of getting in the way of people who know what they're doing. And it's the same way in conversation. If you don't if you don't know some things, then some of this stuff is insensitive, not because of your intent. If you tell a Japanese person, you know, man, you're the you're the coolest Chinese person I've ever met, right? You probably really are trying to give them a compliment, but you're really messing up just because you should know more than that. Like yeah. there's, a, there's a basic responsibility of being a human and a citizen. If you're a citizen, you should know some, at least current events, you know what I mean? At least know what's going on now before you leave the door and you're being like really passionate one way calling for Nancy Pelosi's, Pelosi's resignation or, or, you know, whatever it is, whether right. you're, you know, bashing the president or bashing Pelosi or whomever it is, at least have a basic, <laughs> at least a, a basic palette of current event knowledge to know about before you go and start improvising. Right. You're making me think of John Maddock, who's a, another keyboard player, mm -hmm. great player here in town. He always shows up to a gig with a thermos of coffee and the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And when he's on break, he's, you know, he's studying, he's thinking. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, there's a, this generation, these last couple of generations are a bit different in that, like, so you're old enough to remember, like when you were a kid, 
and it came time to clean the, clean the house, like sprinkles around and the big spring cleaning. In all of the households, the, whole, the main cleaning issue is what to do with all this newspaper. Like, what do we do with all this newspaper? Because most houses at least got the newspaper once a day. Most of them got it twice a day. Morning paper, evening paper. And that was the classic thing for parents to do. They get home, they open up the paper. They go through the paper. And then everybody was walking around with a basic, a basic level of knowledge. And you can make the argument that all, you know, all the news came from one of two sources and all that stuff. But at least they knew, the, at least they had a basic palette of information to discuss things from. And nowadays, like, nobody has a newspaper. That's the thing that's suffering the most. Because people don't realize newspapers used to pay for journalists. Yeah. So the newspaper subscription paid for better journalism. So now we have so many fewer good journalists. And now that we have the 24 hour news cycle that has replaced the newspaper, the 24 hour news cycle is now selling products with current events. They're like, entertaining you with current events as opposed to informing you. So if you want to feel this way, you go to this network. If you want to feel that way, you go to that network. And all of us are partially informed from the side we like the most. And we've become so tribal that there's no, I mean, we look at the same, I mean, we look at the same event and two opposing different, we're looking at the exact same thing, but this network covers it this way, this network covers it that way, and we've become so tribal. That's too blanket of a statement. Too many of us have become so tribal that we can't discuss each other. Now, I'm an optimist. Like my, I, I always say I'm such an optimist that my blood type is B positive. And that's <laughs> the truth, my blood type is B positive. But I think, now this is, my, this is my take, and I think it's the truth, is that we hear the rancor from the left and from the right. And it's mostly people that are on the farther part of the left and the farther part of the right. And because they're the ones making all the noise, it seems like they're the ones that are setting the agenda. And that's that's true to an extent, but the decisions are made when it comes time to vote, not so much from the noisemakers, but the people who are center left and center right. The ones that are relatively reasonable, they're not marching, they're not burning things down, probably not even participating in the polls, but they're the majority of the ones that show up at the polls. And um, those are the ones that I have faith in because uh, I think my, again, life is a jam session of ideas and you, you enter a, you participate in a jam session with feel, not with knowledge. Like you don't, when you get ready to play your next thing, there's no guarantee it's going to work. You have a feel that is going to work. And when it works, it feels good. My feel is that the middle left and the middle right recognize what's reasonable and what's not. And they're pretty fatigued 
uh, where we are right now. I think that's pretty much a common denominator of most people that are just kind of in the middle. And I think, I hope that they'll show up at the polls and they'll, and they'll make a good decision. If there's anything encouraging, I think it's going to be a while. I think it's going to be a while before we have a, uh, an election with low voter turnout. I think people learn that lesson. I uh, sure hope so, yes. I, I hope so. I hope so. And, uh, you know, whatever, whatever happens, there's no guarantee. I hope that we can get past uh, the tribalism. That, that, part, that part is dangerous. I mean, that's what, uh, that's what uh, destroyed Rome, right? Tribalism. <laughs> Not being able to reason with each other. Well, as a musician, mm-hmm. and you know, one who's traveled the world, I'm, I'm guessing you've played all over the world. I have. Um, you've seen you've seen a lot. What a what an opportunity, and what a great window to view, you know, cultures and civilization. And you, you seem like you do a lot of reading I and do. a lot of thinking. <laughs> I do. Um, you. Would you say like I, and I keep I'm hearing you use metaphors that sound like what things that musicians would say. You know, mm-hmm. you're gonna try something out and see if it works well. Mm-hmm. Um, do, has your band taught you lessons like that? The current band you've played with, you played with Steve Miller. You played with him mm-hmm. for how many years? Uh, it was um, Earth Day was 27 years to the day of my first gig with Steve Miller. Earth Day. Earth Day '93 was my first gig with Steve Miller. Is that a crazy? 27 years later. It's a blessing. Okay. It is. It is. When I first got that gig, he said uh, when he, I sent in an audition cassette tape, somebody, a guy named Chris McCarty had told me to, that he, Chris McCarty was a co-writer on a couple of Steve Miller greatest hits. And he told me about the opening in the band and he told me all the advantages and I sort of blew it off. And the second day he said, man, you need, he chatted me again about sending in the tape. So I sent in, sent in the tape. Um, I sent in, uh, like abracadabra, I, I, uh, I, I, so abracadabra is, right? And I did. And I put a piano solo or organ solo synthesizer solo. I had just done a sound alike uh, version of Boys Demands Acapella, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday. So that was four-part harmony. So he, I knew singing harmony was going to be part of the gig. And then I sent in uh, me uh, on Whitney's debut record. There's a song called Thinking About You, and Whitney and I are singing together. So I sent that in so he would know that I could sing harmony and that I had done it, you know, at the highest level. I got the gig, and he said uh, the day that he called me back, uh, he said, uh, you know, I really like your tape. And he said, uh, love for you to be in the Steve Miller band. He said, it's the kind of, it's the kind of gig you could have for the next 10 years if you wanted it. <laughs> 27, it's 27 <laughs> years later. I love it. Yeah, but about what, what I've learned from my band. Um, I just, from the Steve Miller band, I learned that all kinds of personalities have to find a way to make it work. Right. Um, I've also found like with Steve, I, I really learned that it's not enough just to get to the instrument and play like you. Right. You got to get to the instrument and make it feel like he wants to make it feel. 
And the challenge was, in the Steve Miller band, a lot of those, a lot of those uh, hits don't have keyboards in them, right? So my thing is to fill the space in a way that doesn't, doesn't change the feel of a song that people have been listening to for 40 plus years. Um, I also, I mean, you got to learn the personality. Steve loves, Steve loves piano playing, listening to it, but playing it live, he doesn't like that piano motion around his voice. It gets in the way. So I know if he sends me a song that has all this great piano work, I know to know the piano work in case he asked me to play it, but I know that once he starts singing, he's not going to want it because he doesn't, he doesn't need things moving in that register where his voice is. Right. And that's the gig is like finding out what the leader wants and then being good at providing it. That's the gig. Not, not just coming in and doing the things that I could do, come in and chord substituting all over the place and, you know, playing polyrhythmic over and, you know, playing these lines. That's not, I mean, a, a side gig is being in tune with what the leader wants and then doing what you do best to make the leader sound at his best, not to make people turn their heads from the leader and go, wow, what did he just do? That's yeah. not the gig, right? The gig, a gig is more than just hitting the stage and doing your thing. What I've learned from my band is, uh, and you are talking about hands of soul, hands of soul. Yes. What I've learned from my, my Joseph Wooten and the hands of soul band is, is that the joy that I get and the joy that they get when they enjoy playing for the person who's in charge. Right. I enjoy, I enjoy the joy uh, that I get and they get um, when they tell me how much they like playing with me. I mean, that makes me feel good. I mean, I, you could, you could be a slave driver and do that thing, but that doesn't feel nearly that doesn't feel nearly as good. So when we're playing and um, everybody's smiling and, and enjoying, uh, uh, enjoying the combination of freedom and discipline, it's just, that's just life at its best because we're, we're on the planet to be creative, but we're also on the planet to be together. So when we can be together and be creative and, feel good about the person who's in charge. And when you know that, like, that they enjoy working with you, uh, uh, they, that it makes them feel better to do, to play your music the way you want it played. That's, there's big lessons in there. There's yeah. big lessons in there in, uh, in being a leader, but also being part of them too, being like, being in charge, but not being, not trying to be more than them, not trying to make them subordinate. I'm just the one, I'm the one with my name on it. You guys know it. I'm happy that you're here. You're happy to be here. And, uh, and we just privileged. Just I hear privileged you. To play music. You know, I uh, it's really cool that you're, you know, uh, putting those two situations in the position that they are in. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I watched you, you, I watched a video on YouTube mm -hmm. of you guys playing a live show in Alpharetta, Georgia, um, Steve Miller? 2018 mm -hmm. and with Steve Miller. Mm -hmm. And he like, I think it was take the money and run. He yeah. Was really big solo. And it's, mm -hmm. you get to do your thing. 
Yep. Sounds like to me for, mm-hmm. you know, that, that interlude or whatever. And there may be more moments like that for you in the show. Yeah. A fly like an eagle is the big one. Oh yeah, of course. Is that, that's my, you know, big a minor runway. <laughs> Do you have a Hammond organ on stage for that sometimes? No, no. I'm playing in, I'm playing in Nord. Okay. Like there was a, we had a shell at one point that looked like a big B3 and uh, the shell you could, you could put different panels in and it would look like different colored B3s. But I'm playing for the most part, I'm playing a Nord for all the organ stuff. Uh, the pianos and the, uh, and the samples are on a, a, a Roland Phantom. You know, the, most of the samples are on the triggers on the little pads and that makes it easy. And then I have another keyboard. I have the, uh, a motif over on the left because sometimes out of nowhere he wants to hear an oboe or strings or something out of left field. So I learned, I learned early when I first joined the gig had just like the world's greatest keyboard tech that built this giant rack that had all the sounds in it. But Steve is not the most patient guy when he wants it, he wants it right now. So he would want whatever, whatever, and I'd either have to wait for the tech to find it or either I'd have to leave the stage and go like to the rack. And I learned really quickly, this is not the way for it to be. So I got an extra keyboard. So when he wants something right away, I can go right to the keyboard with knobs and sliders and get it for him just like that. And that's pretty much the gig. The, the difference with the Steve Miller band and keyboards is that a normal rhythm section Drums have a role, bass, guitar, keyboards have equal roles. The Steve Miller's a guitar band. Those songs are written with guitar. The hits are guitar, bass, and drums. Layers of guitar, bass, and drums. Layers of vocal. So the Steve Miller band is a guitar band that has a keyboard in it, which is different than we're just a rhythm section, right? So when we learn a new song, I don't jump right in. Oh, here's the G chord. I don't jump right in with a G. I jump in and see what the guitars are doing first. And then I play not to get in the way of the guitars because I know in Steve's head, guitars come first. He's a guitar player. Guitars yeah. come first. It, guitars don't always come with the B3 sitting in the middle of it. Or with the, the pianos, per, piano is percussive. So, you know, he always hears the pick on the strings. So piano motion and guitar motion is, he loves it on a record, but he doesn't really love it live in real time. So I play the gig with that in mind. Here's a guy that hears guitars first. He hears guitars first, and then the keyboards have to fit in there somewhere with the guitars leading the way. And that's, that's the thing that you learn with simplicity. You don't learn that by knowing your music theory you don't learn that by knowing a bunch of the real book or, or whatever. That's the thing of you have a basis of knowledge, but you have to have some sim- you have to have some sensitivity for the person who's in charge and uh, and find your place. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. Um, when I was listening to your solo stuff, you, mm-hmm. know, you cover a lot of ground. I mean, just my observation is, you know, you there, there was some gospel. Mm-hmm. Definitely funk. Yeah, no uh, doubt. Some R and B. Even some rock. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I like it. I like it all. Like I've I've played everything and and I like everything. And um, 
it's, I like, one of the things that I like to do, especially with my band, I like to, to show them how these styles that we don't think relate, uh, relate. Like I was, there's a thing I was going to do. A, uh, let's see. Uh, I was going to go, uh, uh, let's see. Always and forever. Right? <laughs> Just because those are two things that don't normally go together, but they do go together. E-flat major seven, it's giant steps, but it's always and forever too. So I like to, I like to put things together there that, that do like a... I did this last day. <laughs> right? You don't always go from you don't always go from Herbie Hancock to Outkast, but why not? Right? <laughs> why not? You know, always, always like, and forever is one of the first forty fives I ever bought by Heatwave. I love that. Yes, so much. what a great group. And the thing about Heatwave. Heatwave was this bunch of great R&B groups from Dayton, Ohio. Like something about, I mean, Heat. I mean, Dayton, Ohio. There was Slave, the Ohio Players, Lakeside. Come along, pack your bags. Um, Bootsy Collins and the JBs were just right up the road. Um, L.A. and Babyface, uh, Shirley Murdoch, uh, Heatwave. Roger Troutman, Zap, you know, more bounce to the ounce, just loaded with, and I, I know I, I know I miss a, um, uh, the Daz Band, Daz Band was Dayton, Ohio, wow. and uh, I didn't realize this. Yeah, and uh, I called I call Ohio the funkiest state of the union, and I was born in Columbus, so. <laughs> oh, were you really? I was born in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, December fifteenth, nineteen sixty-one. I got the same. I, I found that I have the same birth date as the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment. I thought that's cool as can be because December fifteenth is one day, either after or before Beethoven, which they're not sure whether he was the fourteenth or the sixteenth of December. And I was okay. like, how cool would that be to have Beethoven's birthday? And then I was doing a gig for the First Amendment Center, and they had a quote on the wall. Uh, from uh, December 15th, 1991, which was 200 years after the ratification of the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment, and the Second Amendment too, I guess, all the amendments. And I was like, oh, that's my birthday. They were like, so I realized I was born uh, 100 and 170 years after the ratification of the, of the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment. That's cool. But yeah, um, different styles. I love, I love different styles. Did your um, parents both play instruments? No, no, they didn't. But they were both music lovers and they were both really soulful people. They were talented enough. They could have done it if they'd have had the opportunity. They didn't have the opportunity, but when they saw that we liked to play music, then they just gave, they just fed the opportunity. So Reggie Roy and Rudy, Rudy Roy and Reggie, 
are three, four, and five years older than me. And then I'm three years older than Victor. So Victor's the youngest. And Reggie Roy and Rudy Roy and Reggie started playing in elementary school on school issued instruments. Rudy had the recorder and he was like, right away, if he heard it, he could play it. And he's like, I, I don't ever remember him sounding like he was learning. I just remember him being really good. Roy was beating on everything. I don't ever remember him sounding like he was learning. And Reggie started out on Roy's ukulele. Could play everything that he heard. He was, they were eight, nine, and 10. So Reggie said to five-year-old me, two-year-old Victor, you know, if you do this, you do that, we can have a band. And, you know, you want to do what your older brothers do. So I think I'm in kindergarten and Victor's two years old and he starts teaching us one note at a time by ear. And uh, lo and behold, a few days later, we're playing concerts out in the yard. And uh, so my mom always giving kids opportunity. Christmas rolls around. My parents, you know, we got toys, toy instruments. And I had a little Schroeder piano and <laughs> and a uh, little toy thing. And I remember Reggie just said, just hit that note. That's all you got to do. Just hit that note. And then on the ukulele, he was... Right. And like, yeah. just like that, boom, we're, we're making music. And just like that, I could join in. And then after a while, you still just add, you know, add. And then from there, you know, he's like, just learn these in all 12 positions, learn them all. And then so I learned all my majors, learned all my minors. And now on a keyboard, you're going to need to learn stuff like this. So I learned, and and uh, you know he he taught me until until I could play, and then uh, after we got to a certain age, he was like, okay, well you're gonna need to learn this, you know this, you know this is the staff, and these are the lines. Every good boy does fine. F A C E, you know treble clef, bass clef. These are all the sharps and flats. You're gonna need to memorize this, you know quarter notes, half notes. Yeah, eighth notes, sixteenth notes, and you know when you put him on, and he showed us the basics because once we knew how to play, then you know you're going to have to be able to play with other people, and you're going to need to know what the stuff is. And uh, by the time I ever had any other instruction by anybody, and really the only other formal instruction, I, I had one classical lesson, and um, it was just one because I already could play. Like we're already doing gigs and I go and she's showing me the A minor scale. And I'm thinking in my head, I just took a solo in A minor last night. I know what this scale is. <laughs> Don't start me like I've never seen a piano before. <laughs> right. And, you know, there I was like in the musical high chair. So that yeah. lasted for one, one. Uh, <laughs> musical high chair. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what it felt like, right? What you're teaching me, like, you know. I'm thinking, you know, I already know what to do, you know, with these white keys. I can, I can, you know, I can solo in a, a bunch of these keys, right? I'm trying to get, so I knew what she was, I mean, I, I understand now what she's trying to do, but that's, I could already play. So right. when brothers started going to college, uh, they had a music instructor, 
Spike Lee's aunt. Spike Lee has has jazz musician aunts and uncles. And his aunt, she's passed away now, but Aunt Cut Consuela. And uh, Consuela, she was Consuela Lee, but I mean, she was Consuela Moorhead back then, but Consuela Lee Moorhead. Um, now she had a different approach. She said, okay, um, do you know your chords? I said, yeah, I do. She said, okay, well, play me a D minor. So I went to the keyboard, you know, and I played a D minor, uh, D minor seven, right? She said, okay, well, technically, she said, that's right. She said, but look at your note selection. I said, let's count them. She was like, one, two, three, four, five, six. She said, you have six notes and three of them are Ds. <laughs> <laughs> He said, so I'm going to show you. And she started teaching me about voicings. So now instantly I know I'm growing. And then, so I remember we went, because everybody was talking about the Wooten brothers, right? When Reggie, Roy, and Rudy went to college in Norfolk, Virginia. So Victor and I came up. I'm in high school. Victor's in middle school. And uh, she took us to one of the practice rooms. She said, okay, uh, play something. So I think we played like squib cakes or something, Tower Power. Well, at that, at that time in the band, I was playing a lot of organ, right? Not a B3, I had a, a, I had a, a Yamaha uh, combo organ with the Leslie. So now here we are playing squib cakes, I'm on a piano, right? The instrument felt, sounded this big, right? No Leslie to make the notes do that thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I'm playing and I'm taking my solos as best I can and I'm doing my two-hand stuff. So uh, Consuela being a very good instructor, so we played and uh, and she went to the piano and she played this elaborate two-handed beautiful piece because she had just harmony was her thing. And my lick, my sort of signature two-handed lick she was doing with like one hand while accompanying herself with the left hand. And I remember that, I remember that day really clearly because we were driving back home. It was about a 35 minute drive, 35, 40 minute drive back home. And I remember being really quiet on the way back home because I knew I either, I either really needed to practice or I needed to stop because oh. she was so far ahead of me. Yeah, he was so far ahead of me, and I could clearly see I had a long, I had a long way to go, and uh, I clearly wasn't there yet. And I remember going home, and I just started practicing. I just started <laughs> practicing and practicing and practicing, and because and my brothers were practicing too, and that was the beauty of being in the family because there wasn't competition because we're on different instruments. Like if we were all bass players, maybe there's a competition and we're all guitar players, all sax players, all drummers. We're on different instruments and everybody else is getting really good quickly. And you don't want to be the guy, you know, we want to play this, whatever the song is, Return to Forever, Tower of Power, and you can't play your part. Right. So we, you know, we all practiced and we were inspired by each other and we had other people to play with. That was a main thing. I mean, a good music, a good young musician normally has trouble finding other people to play with. And we go, you know, hey, you guys want to practice after we watch Good Times? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Instant band. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's, that's what we did our whole lives. I mean, from the time I was five years old to now, 
I've always had, always had people to play with. It's a great way to grow up and all the lessons you learn, getting good on the instrument, you can apply it to your life. And my mom gave us really good guidance, really good example. She had her eye on making sure we weren't arrogant. She had her eye on, uh, she knew that uh, we would practice and get good, but she wanted to make sure that like we were articulate and that we knew our, you know, how to read well, knew our basic math, uh, read, knew, and knew how to express ourselves, writing, knew that we could look people in the eye and, and, and that kind of thing. Like we go to school, my mom would be like, now when you go to school, they said, your teacher does something wrong, you call me. It said, I'm coming. When I come, I'm gonna I'm gonna be on your side, but you better be right when I get there. So we had that backing, we had that competence. Uh, music gave us identity. In fact, music kept people from trying to get us in trouble, you know, trying to get you into whatever it is. <laughs> you know, drug use or drinking or, or yes. whatever. They oh, don't mess with them, man. They one of the wooten boys, man. They play that music. They left <laughs> alone. Right. And um, yeah. it's when you're in high school, it's important for you to have an identity or else you can get lost in the shovel. So we had identity. We had direction. We had a place to play. We had opportunity. It, it would have been hard for one of us to mess up because all the other brothers were really good examples, too. Right. You know, when my mom would go to work and she'd leave Reggie in charge. Reggie was our babysitter, right? She said, Reggie's in charge. When I'm going, what Reggie says goes. If he says something, if he does something that's not right, I don't want you to take it up. You bring it to me when I come home and I'll talk to Reggie. And Reggie was, you know, he's a great example back then. He's a great example now. And you know, he was the most influential music teacher that I've had. I'm still using, I'm still using stuff that Reggie taught me a long time ago. I'm teaching mu- people music theory that Reggie taught me a long time ago. I mean, to the point where I've, I've had some music theory from, from some teachers and I go, that's not quite right. <laughs> because I've been, I've been taught really, I've been taught uh, really well. And, and the things that we learned, we, we uh, were able to execute it in real time because we had, we had other people to play with. So if Reggie shows you something, you can go right down into the garage and use that thing you just learned, which is yeah. why if, if, if the Wooten brothers have an advantage, it's the fact that most of what we've learned, we've learned either in front of people or in real time, not in the practice room. Gotcha. And that's a, that's a big advantage. It is, and it's so helpful, and it makes it more fun. Mm-hmm. But it also, like, some of the things that work in the practice room don't work live, right? Some, you know, so you get, you get live and you find out that that lick that seems so incredible is just too jumbled for people to get it. <laughs> it's just jumbled. And, and sometimes you, like, like things, one of, the, one of the things that work for me the best is that Wednesday night, that every Wednesday night gig that we had, you know, that started out, I think, in nine, maybe 1990 in Printer's Alley in an old club called Saks Fourth Avenue for Printer's Alley. And when I got to Nashville, I really didn't have my own identity yet. I was one of the Wooten brothers, 
right? But Wednesday after Wednesday, I developed, I recognized what my identity was because I could see what, what I did that resonated with people. I could see people like my sense of humor. I could see people like, people liked how rhythmic I was. Mm-hmm. I, got, I got a chance to see the, the effectiveness of repetition. You know, it wasn't like you had to keep blowing and keep blowing and keep blowing and keep blowing. Sometimes you have to like guide people to the thing that you do the best by doing it more than once. I learned that and, and I sort of developed for myself, developed an identity over all of those years of Wednesdays. And that's what, that's what music is. Music is a, if you're getting better at an instrument, it's, it's a journey to yourself. Yes. Like you're finding out what you're finding out who you are with more and more clarity. And once you recognize that it's almost like adding zeros to a number, right? It's still five, but now it's 50. Now it's, you know, now it's 500. Now it's 5,000. It's still the same characteristics of five, but there's more to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so by the time the Steve Miller gig rolled around, I had an identity to present as opposed to just being like one of the five Wooten brothers whose function is to like fit in with the other brothers. Right. I was able to, I was able to, uh, to have an identity in addition to that because the Wednesday, the Wednesday night gig was, it was a benefit I won't say a benefit and a detriment. There was an upside. It was a double-edged sword in that people would come and sometimes they'd be like, wow, we've never seen anybody do that before. But seldom does somebody want you to play on their record because you just did something they've never seen before, right? Sometimes they just want a piano player, a piano played sensitively or they want somebody who's going to accompany somebody well. And like sometimes they come out and they'd hear me play a, you know, a hundred mile an hour solo over wipeout you know what i mean <laughs> like, I'm not sure how many gigs this is getting me some applause tonight but i'm not sure how, how many gigs it's gonna get me you know yes yes but uh, people tend people tend to, to feel authenticity though and once you find once you get a good idea of who you are people tend to accept authenticity even when it's not their thing you know i mean like look at prince i didn't agree with all his lyrics but he's such an authentic version of himself. You could hear him searching sometimes. And, you know, ancestors, everything he said to me, oh, sister. You know, that would, I wouldn't go, you know what? He's making a lot of sense. That incest thing. That's, you know, but you recognize, uh, you recognize the artistry. You recognize he's just a guy in search of something. He's making some mistakes. But yeah. uh, but he's putting himself he's putting himself out there in a very artistic, high quality way, and you could you you couldn't uh, that couldn't be denied. So yes, I like how you talk about the way that you sort of changed abracadabra. Like you, you know, you play you approached it like a funk player would have been mm-hmm. in my yeah. you know. Um, how would you say like for my students that are really? I mean, I have about twenty five students right now. Okay. And like the part that really made my ears stand up when you, you know, no pun intended. It's okay. when you, you talked about when you started practicing, like you mm-hmm. decided I'm either going to quit this or I'm going to practice. Yeah. What, what kind yeah. of approach did you just start? Um, did you copy other artists, like try to uh, transcribe their solos or 
Well, how did you that? How'd you develop your harmonic sense? Because that's such a big deal on piano. Well, now, so for me, when I told you about her telling me about voicings, that was that's when I realized I needed to be able to do that yeah. because. Before, I was all getting it done just with rhythm and feel, right? And I've always been a pattern player because in the beginning, when, um, when my, my brother Rudy, I used to double a lot of his horn parts, his sax parts on the organ. And he could really, I mean, he could blow. And I, I had these little hands and I couldn't keep up. And it wasn't until there was a lick he was playing. It was a funky Nassau that had a horn for. Remember that song? So who did you go? Right? So I couldn't do that. And then it dawned on me to play that. I could do it if I used these fingers. You know, and then when I realized I could do that at any speed. And I was like, oh, okay. So now I found some dexterity, right? So from there, that enabled me, if I can do it with four, I can do it with you. If I can do it, uh, I can do it. I can, uh, uh, right? And I just working with patterns and patterns gave me a platform to improvise from. Gotcha. And so that's what, that's how I learned to improvise. I started with patterns and then patterns. I applied them to the pentatonic scale because Reggie was smart enough to teach me the pentatonic scale and then the blue scale from the pentatonic scale. So I had a, I had a framework to use my patterns from. That's how I started soloing harmonically. Fortunately, uh, I was able to study with their college instructor from high school. And she was the one teaching me about voicings. Like she was saying, uh, when you play a, a minor seven chord, a good, a good voicing is always one, seven, three, five, right? And then there's a bass player, just drop the bass note and that's still a good voicing. Yeah. I was like, that's a, that's a, a, a giant leap forward into how to play chords. One, seven, three, five. This is the way you play it if nobody else is playing with you. This is the way you play it if there's a bass player, right? And so she showed me some, you know. Two, five right? ones. Yeah, but she showed me the two, five ones, but good voicings of the two, five ones. Right. And then how to play the two, five, one if there's no bass player. Just drop the bass note. And and then, you know, those were things where uh, I was off and running. And then Reggie was, Reggie uh, showed me how uh, he, his, he always his easy way of putting things. He says, think about it in terms of jazz is oftentimes based off of fourths, right? Uh, right. And, and classical music is based off of triads. Right, let receiver king, and from those, from just that, that building block, it made things easier. So, like, if I'm, if I, I know, and I, I tell, I show this to students all the time. 
if you're accompanying somebody and they're singing and it's a C major chord, an easy version, a, a very useful version to play underneath because you don't know if they're going to sing a tonic or a major seven and you want them to be able to have the freedom. So if I come in playing major seven, it's going to be hard for them to sing the tonic because, right? So to, to solve that, play it six, go to the third and play fourths. And now they can sing the tonic or they can sing, they can sing the major seven on the tonic and I'm not in the way. Yeah. Because and it's easy. You go, you play the tonic, go to the third, and play fourths. It's a very useful vo- voicing and a really useful voicing for an accompanist. So if I play fourths, if I even if I play four, one, two, three, four, right? I got the I got the third, the six, uh, the two, and the five, and I'm not in the way of the vocalist, and that chord feels very filled out because I hear it. I hear that all the time it, where you you hear the, the major seven and the person was saying, I do love you still. And it's just like, <laughs> I mean, it can be done, right? That's not going it, to, it's done all the time. But if you know some things about voicings, it helps. And I learned it from, from Spike Lee's aunt, who was just a, gotcha. she's just a, a master at it. She just That's had wonderful. the creativity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you're, you know, you're quite a humanitarian. I mean, uh, I've got to t- say that um, I was talking to Janelle Means. Mm. I love Janelle. Me too. Um, and we were, we were just having a conversation about, you know, being in a pandemic time and um, just, dealing with not playing live and, you know, how we're feeling about that. And mm-hmm. uh, we were, you know, kind of challenging each other to try some new things, uh-huh. branch out right now. And, right. you know, and she said, well, you know who told me that I should uh, start recording some songs and putting them on Facebook live. And I'm like, who? She said, Joseph Wooten. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no kidding. Guess what? He's going to be on the podcast. And, She's like, yeah, Joseph is really encouraging, like to many, many people. Mm. And I noticed you have like a, you have a nonprofit organization. Imatteryoumatter.com, yeah. And uh, your YouTube channel, it, it, it looks like you've talked, you've, you talked to a lot of people. Well, for a while. So I had a friend slash manager that lived in Buffalo, New York, and she was a former music educator. And I met her doing a concert in Buffalo one time. And she said, she saw me talking to people after the show was over. She said, I think you'd be good to talk to my students. So she flew me up and had me speak to her music students. And that went really well. So she went to the school board because she was, by that time, she had, she had been teaching more than 20 years. And uh, she went to the school board and they authorized some funds for me to come up and speak at a bunch of high schools around Buffalo, New York. So I, I probably did that two or three years, almost all the high schools and a lot of the middle schools, some of the elementary schools up in Buffalo because they have some challenges up there. And um, from there, I've had some more opportunities to do it. One of, the, one of the best, most rewarding ones that I did just before the pandemic shut things down. In fact, it was 
it was earlier, the last public gig I did, um, I went to a place called uh, The Next Door. And uh, they're a treatment center for women in crisis. Uh, be it, you know, be it drug addiction or they're, they're fleeing a, you know, violent situation at home or whatever. And it, they have a full clinic in there. They have psychiatric help. They, it gives, gives them a, a place for them to get back on their feet. And then they even have affordable housing for them after it's done. Because uh, if you, like, especially if there were, if there was any uh, jail time, you know, you're ineligible for public housing, ineligible for government assistance. And uh, they have affordable housing that they own. So it's just a, a really good place. And they had, they had a thing uh, they do there because they can't leave called Saturday Night Inn. And they had me come in and just play for the, uh, for the ladies that was in. And man, it was so fun. We played old music. Somebody wanted to hear some Garth Brooks. Somebody wanted to hear, you know, some Stevie Wonder. So I did the thing. I did uh, this thing that we often do with the brothers where, you know, we're playing Let's Get It On. And then I do this thing like, if Bobby Womack walked in the room, he might sing something like this. And then you say, if you think you're lonely now, wait until the And then, you know, if Bobby Brown were to walk in, he might sing something. I'm talking, Mr. Telephone Man. Yeah. <laughs> right. and keep going through artists and keep going through artists. And, you know, we just had a, we had a really good time and they were so grateful. And then I was able to speak to them also. So I was, uh, I was telling them, you know, you guys are going to applaud for me. And, you know, some of you are impressed because I'm in the Steve Miller band, but you're the one that's doing the thing that's hard. Because the, the toughest thing to do in life is to look at yourself and go, I have a problem. And tougher than that is to even fix it. And most people aren't able to do it. So, so you're the ones doing, doing the hard thing. I'm playing music. That's easy for me. I've been doing it my whole life. But you have a challenging situation. Not only have you recognized that you had it, but you're in the midst of fixing it. And that's, you know, that's the thing uh, to be commended. I'll accept the applause, but you're doing something harder than I'm doing. And that was so, that kind of thing is so, uh, is so rewarding. And then from there, I went straight to there and played at Rudy's with my band and that was really fun we had a really good night and that was the last gig before the pandemic oh goodness wow yeah. who, but, who else go ahead, go ahead. no well, i was going to say everything happens for something right like all the musicians are waiting for the dust to settle all the people with employment they're waiting for the dust to settle and we're trying to figure out uh, what we're going to do next but most of the time hardship happens so that we'll be better than we were before and what this has sort of forced us to do is sort of stop. All we had was each other, right? So we reached out through Zoom like we're doing now or, or, uh, or telephones or Facebook Live, and it forced us to reach out in a real way, which you don't have to do it in a real way when everything's going well. You're like, ah, I'll talk to them in a minute. Mm -hmm. you know, or, uh, it's not that that big of a deal, all of a sudden you can't leave the house and it's yeah. dangerous to leave the house and relationships really mean something. Now, 
financially, you know, we're going through some things, but finances can be fixed. But if we can, if we can retain some of this connection, like the next, the next musician that hits the stage and can play to like a crowd is not going to hit the stage and go, man, I hate this gig. Right. Which you never should have said in the first place. You're one, of the, you're one of the fortunate ones that gets a chance to play music and, and get paid for it, right? That, that's, a, that's a thing that you say pretty much when you're spoiled, right? Yeah. Like you should watch a person come out of prison. They kiss the ground. They'll, they would never say something like that because they have it in perspective. They've had it taken away from them, so they know what freedom actually is. We have so much freedom. We get up and go... I'm bored. I'm <laughs> bored. And you got the whole world. You can come and go. You have money to come and go. You can eat whatever you want. You can wear whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. And you go, I'm bored because, you know, fun hasn't come and like, and knocked on your door effectively. enough. <laughs> <laughs> Americans generally, we are freedom spoiled. We're so free. We're just spoiled with it. We think it works on its own. We think it doesn't need our participation. And that's what happened in the last election. I mean, uh, for people that, that wanted the president, they were fine. But a lot of people stayed home. Like a lot of people didn't get, they didn't get Bernie. So it was like, I didn't get my way. So I'm staying home. He'll never get elected. Then he got elected. Well, it, now it's too late to start burning cars and like tearing up property because you didn't participate. And for things to go well, it requires our participation. But for us to participate effectively enough, we have to recognize what it is that we're trying to preserve, right? We have so much freedom here, we think it takes no work, right? But soldiers recognize that it takes work because they're the ones that are pushing back the evil forces uh, from day to day. Police officers recognize it. You know, not every police officer is a good one, but not every musician is a good one either, right? So it takes, it, takes, it takes all kinds. But my point is they recognize that it takes some work for law and order to happen. But soldiers, police officers, good parents, so many things go right. It seems like it doesn't take any work for a lot of us. But it's important for us to recognize um, what it is that we have and how privileged we are to have it. And when you recognize that something is valuable, then you want to protect it. Yes. I, yeah. I think, you know, Nashville is in an interesting position with the tornado hitting. Mm. And then, uh, then, we, then we had the pandemic, the shelter in place, and then we had a, another storm that came through two weeks ago. Man, my, uh, speaking of that storm, my, uh, the, the house that my kids grew up in, they, they're still living there. I have a home in, in Nashville. I live in Franklin. I was talking to them and saying, you know, I think there's some weather coming. And my oldest son was like, yeah, I should probably get downstairs. He's going downstairs and he says to my, I hear him say to my other son, did you hear that? It blew a tree over. It blew a tree over like tree fell right straight down the center. I mean, like a big, yes. huge tree. And uh, now fortunately they were okay. And like they came and got the tree off the house and they tarped up the roof. So it's not leaking and stuff. And they're supposed to start on it uh, the middle of uh, the middle of this coming week. But you know, where we have so much in this country that 
we're just spoiled. We're not used to things happening here. We're used to reading about pandemics. Like when it was happening in China, we were like, oh man, that's a shame, right? <laughs> yeah. And then we went on out and did what we wanted. And then it was here and we're not used to, we're not used to going through stuff here. Terrorism happens over there. Like the, our biggest worry is, boy, we hope, you hope your child doesn't get drafted and have to go over there and fight. We don't think yeah. about, we, we normally don't have things that go on here. And here it is, you know, we're creeping up on 90,000, 90, but even for something like this, once again, too many of us can't be reasoned with. Too many of us say, well, it's a hoax. Death suggests in half, and uh, and it's a it's just a democratic conspiracy, or you know what I mean. Everybody has all the tests that they need, and you can have you can have all of those opinions, but that doesn't mean that everybody that do- doesn't have that opinion is an idiot, right? Or is a Trump tard, or a libtard, or a snowflake, or a, you know. And, you know, I'm so tired of those illegals. Like, and you, it's like the worst part about racism is that you don't have to say it anymore. Like you say illegals and you know, they're talking about like South Americans, Mexicans. A big chunk of the people that are illegal here came from Europe and overstayed their visas. They came from Asia, they came from, and and they're not the, the ones that overstay from Europe. They're not picking avocados and strawberries and cleaning homes and, uh, and, and roofing houses. They're the ones with like business owners and good paying jobs. They're they're the ones that are really making revenue. And you say illegals, nobody's thinking about them. You know what I mean? We need to have strong borders as if we only have one border, like as if every Canadian goes back when they're supposed to. Right. And it's, um, it's unfortunate that Americans tend to be at their best when things are at their worst, right? During the pandemic, we reached out to each other and we were, we were in it together for a while. But when we get comfortable, we tend to be at our worst when things are at uh, their best. And it's important that the, that's, that's the importance of music because music instantly brings people together. So while we have them together, for that moment, it's important for us to leave them with something that they'll take away from when the separation starts. That's why like Earth, Wind and Fire and all your favorite music is so important. Like like the Serpentine Fire, right? It's like a, it's a song kind of Eastern religion, Kundalini energy running up and down the spine that unites unites the heavens with the earth. You don't have to know all of that to feel the freedom from oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, right? They give you the gift of all of that knowledge uh, with music without you ever having to do all of that study. And that's the benefit of music is that we can make people better without them having all of that, all of that social knowledge and all of that historical perspective music can bring people together james brown say it loud i'm black and i'm proud right we didn't have to know the history of you know the slave trade and all of that to be set free by that lyric right black people were always black and proud but most of the time we knew it was probably safe enough to keep it to ourselves 
right? And all of a sudden, here's this thing that enabled you to shout it at the top of your lungs. And that was freeing for black people. That gift from James Brown to people, to black people, changed a generation. Like they had a bombing in, I forget where it was in Europe. And people, you know, kind of stumbled out into the square in a daze. They started singing Give Peace a Chance, right? They weren't politicians. They weren't well-versed in, you know, politics and world events. But music gave them that gift to be able to sort of sing their way out of this trauma. You know, uh, We Shall Overcome helped them sing their way out of. And that's what music gives you a chance to do is enjoy your way out of this challenging time. And that's why, that's why music is important. It, it already has the ability to bring people here. And if you utilize that right, you can, you can really change things. You can really make changes for the better. I so agree with you. Mm -hmm. I remember just my, my first memory of James Brown, just a, a side note here. Mm -hmm. I was a little girl and I think that maybe I, they played a video or something. And um, I remember the words, love, peace, unity, and having mm -hmm. fun. Mm -hmm. And like, I never mm -hmm. forgot that. It mm -hmm. made such an impression. Those four, you know, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's only five words, but um, well, yeah. the thing, so the thing with James Brown, like what James Brown realized, and he, you know, he didn't have, he didn't even have a high school uh, diploma, but what he realized is that with rhythm, he could deliver the truth with rhythm. So there's the famous story of James Brown, you know, he's in front of his band and he's asking them what they're holding in their hands. He goes to the trumpet player, you know, what are you in, what's in your hand? Uh, it's a trumpet, Mr. Brown. They had to address him as it's a trumpet, Mr. Brown. No, no, that ain't right. Go to the next one, you know, uh, this, uh, this is a guitar, Mr. Brown. No, no, that ain't right. No, no. And finally somebody said, we're holding drums, Mr. Brown. It's a drum. He says, That's right. You're all holding drums. And basically he was telling them to play their instruments rhythmically and he knew he knew that with the funk basically he could change a generation so he had the you know say it loud i'm black and i'm proud don't be to you to say it loud i'm black and i'm boom boom and that you know he had he brought a bunch of children in to sing it and Sure enough, it did. Uh, Fred Wesley was giving an interview and he was talking about the first time they played it live and here's this, this multitude of people and he was playing with a tear in his eye, right? And that's, that's music at its best. James, I don't want nobody to give me nothing. Mm. Open up the door. Mm -mm. I'll get it myself, right? <laughs> Delivering that with rhythm. And really, that's what rhythm is. Rhythm is like, rhythm is the delivery system of whatever it is a melody, lyrics, because music is like rhythm, it's rhythm, it's harmony, and melody. You know, melody is like, melody is like the signature. Melody is like the, uh, uh, the name on the mailbox. So you get there and you know that the woot is here, right? And I guess the melody. Harmony is like, uh, harmony is like the interior decorating of music right it turns it turns the melody into a song 
puts the couch over here, puts the chairs over here, coordinates mm-hmm. the colors. You mm-hmm. walk in now this song, now this melody is a song. And now this this residence is a home. But rhythm is the only one that's foundational. Rhythm is the ground that it sits on. Mm-hmm. And rhythm is the only one of the three that's tribal, that applies to everybody, right? So I saw a thing one time, a a person had a violinist, a world-class violinist on the corner in New York City. Might've been Grand Central Station even. And people were just walking by, they weren't really paying attention and somebody was lamenting about how people don't appreciate music. You know, here's the world's greatest violinist, nobody. And I was like, it's not that people don't appreciate music, just violin's not everybody's thing. Like violin's not tribal. So you could put a drummer on the street. You don't even have to be a good drummer. It could, just, it could be a drummer just with a kick drum. Boo, 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 boo. Just four on the floor. He's going to draw a crowd because people are going to want to see what comes next. Music, I'm sorry, rhythm is the thing that's tribal. Rhythm is, that, is the only part of music that's tribal. And when it's done right, it attracts everybody. Like you can, I always use the the example you could put the world's greatest symphonic orchestra on and a good funk band could follow them (laughs) a good funk band could follow a good symphonic orchestra but you put that same funk band on first symphonic orchestra can't follow them effectively because rhythm unites everybody and symphony is not everybody's thing like the things that are in the cerebral part of music it's not everybody's thing. Not everybody's into jazz. If you love jazz, jazz can take you everywhere. But if jazz is not your thing, but rhythm is everybody's thing. Rhythm is everybody's thing. And that's what James Brown knew. So, uh, and to the point where he and Bobby Bird used to whisper to each other because they knew that they had something so important. If somebody else walked in the room that they didn't think was like worthy of the conversation, they'd break the conversation up to that person left and then they go back speaking to each other because they knew they had this thing that could change a generation. And that was always James Brown's thing. How do I get my, how do I get these people out of the situation? So at one point, James was working 335 days out of the year. Think about that. 335 days he had gigs. He had two bands. One band would play, the other band would travel to the next destination and then he would fly to the next destination and the other band would travel and every day almost every day out of the year uh he had gigs but what he was doing and he was doing his own promotion that was the other thing he wasn't using big promoters he'd get a little local promoter that he knew loved him they do the work he paid them much less for the same amount he was making promoter money and artist money but he was saving all that money up because his plan was to buy radio stations all over the country so black people wouldn't have to try to get on white radio stations to get airplay. Right? Wow. He, and that was his plan. Now, the FCC, for whatever reason, somehow deemed his radio stations unworthy. I don't know that whole story, but, but they shut it down. But that was his plan. And he planned on changing the lives of a whole generation of black people, basically with the funk. That's what he was offering. You know, he was dancing to the funk, 
The music was the funk, and all he was doing was delivering the message uh, with the delivery system of rhythm. And that's uh, that's a powerful that's a powerful thing. James Brown on the day that Martin Luther King got killed in the most likely city to have a riot, Boston, right? Like that, you would think that'd be the first city to burn. James Brown was in Boston on that day and uh, they aired his concert on live television because they figured uh, black people would stay home to see him. And he pretty much single-handedly with the funk stopped the riot. The rest of the country, rest of the big cities were burning. But Boston didn't burn because James Brown was there. So music is a, it's a, it's a powerful, it's a powerful tool. It's a powerful tool that made me think. Um, I saw Dave Chappelle was getting the Mark Twain Award, which is the highest award for comedians. And he told the story, uh, they had him on Saturday Night Live the first Saturday after the election. And um, artists, a lot of artists were pretty upset, right, at the, at the verdict of the election. So uh, they figured they'd have Dave Chappelle on because he's known for being pretty wise and they figured that he wouldn't know what to say. And he walked in and he read a passage from Toni Morrison and it's in my room, I wish I'd brought it, but it said something to the effect of, you know, that uh, when things like this happen, that's not the time for artists to hold their heads down. That's the time for artists to go to work. And it's in, in one way or another, she was saying artists are the one to bring people out of the time that you're in. Artists. And the reason is because what we do with art, we go to the other side that people can't see and we bring it back for them to experience it too. Right? James Brown knew about you know, the dignity of his people and he brought it back for and gave them a way to feel what he already felt. And that's what music is. There's a reason why politicians do a speech. They finish that speech up with don't stop, believe or whatever, because the song can do it better than their words can. Yeah. Yeah. Song can do it better, can do it better than words can. Like if the, I, I always say in the civil rights movement, if they were chanting, we shall overcome, we shall overcome, we shall overcome one day. I mean, that's, but they sang it. Yeah. They sang it and they sang it until their circumstance changed. Singing gives people sustenance. And um, those are powerful tools for a musician that knows what he or she is doing. They're powerful tools. Right after the pandemic started, you put a, a video up on, and you were singing the song. I think you wrote it. Mm-hmm. We're, we're all in this together. We're all in this together, yeah. Um, did you write that just as all this was happening? Or is that, is that an older song? Or? Check this out. Yeah, this is <laughs> going to sound fabricated. So I had the, I, I'm always trying to write songs to bring people together. Right? I have songs, everything's going to be all right. I have you know, those kind of songs. God bless everyone. So I had this song, We're All In This Together. And it just so happened, I had studio time. And the day that I went to record it, the day that I went to put the lead vocals on it, 
was the day after the election. I literally put the lead vocal on the day after the verdict. Right. And um, so I remember I live streamed, uh, I live streamed uh, me singing those, uh, those, that lead vocal. And for a while, for a few days, I was getting 10,000 views a day. Ooh. About 10,000 views a day. And I knew the thing that it, the thing that, that helped me to recognize is that even when we're divided, because we're divided, we have a thirst for something that can bring us together. It, it fertilizes the ground. It fertilizes the ground for something that can make people not feel the discomfort of that division, and that was encouraging for me. It's in, now I haven't been able to. I haven't found the way to make that song stick in a big way. It works every time I sing it for people. If I sing it for schools, if I sing it for, it works every single time. I haven't had a. You know, like I hear CNN say it all the time, we're all in this together. I heard a Cadillac commercial I saw. I've seen it. Uh, Good Morning America says it just about uh, every morning. Yeah, the governor of Kentucky, too. Yeah, the governor of Kentucky. Uh, it was the uh, um, same thing um, in Denver. It was hanging over, the, hanging over the square right in downtown Denver. And that doesn't bother me so much. I know that... I know that uh, uh, a good idea's time will come. So I'm not, I mean, you, you try to do the things that you know are right, not so much because you think it's gonna make you really successful. You try to do them because they're right and something that's right will find its place. So that's, that's, I, that's a thing that I've certainly learned from my parents. You don't go do what's right because you think it's gonna bring you this. Right. You go do what's right because it's right. So. You know, I write that music as long as I see that the music is inspiring. I have like a tangible, tangible proof that the, that the song is inspiring. Then I know to stay on that track. There's another one I wrote called We Are American. Uh, check that, go to, you'll like that. Check that out on a, you'll see, um, uh, if you say um, We Are American, Joseph Wooten, you'll see like a bunch of different faces on there. And it's a video made with some Getty images I and mean, with some Getty footage. And I haven't heard anybody yet that's listened to that song and my friends way on the right and way on the left. And everybody experiences that song the same. So like my, my feel uh, recognizes that there's a thirst for, pe for people to want the thing that's gonna bring us together. It's hard to do it in the public square where people are on this side or that side because there's, when people are tribal, there's camaraderie in being divisive because you know, he's an idiot. And there's a bunch <laughs> of people, oh, yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> You're a racist, yeah. <laughs> and there's, it's easier than to be the one that's coming out and going, hey guys, can we, but music allows you to do that. And it also allows people to come together in a way that doesn't make them uh, feel vulnerable or doesn't make them like feel like they're betraying their tribalism. Yeah. So it has, this big has this big refrain at the end, we are American. And that grows, we are American. And uh, it, 
it's it, it's a really uh, releasing refrain at a time when uh, when we when we need to sing it, and uh, that's that song will do its thing at some point, right? At some point, and and if it never does it in a big way, the fact that it's done it in a small way a bunch of times, the world's a little bit better, and that's that's what we need. Just make the world a little bit better. The dots will connect eventually because we see the effects of people doing the doing the stuff and making the world a little bit worse, right? And that's it's compounding to where we are right now. There's too many people that are uh, that are divisive. But the thing to remember is that people aren't divisive because they're bad people. They're divisive because it feels safer to be that way, right? They're yeah. safety in numbers. So if you say, you're an idiot, there's people, you know, that'll go, yeah, he's an idiot. You can't reason with him. And like, I had a person, I was talking to him, and uh, he's a conservative friend of mine, really nice person, really nice. And, uh, and he was saying about, you know, everybody on the left, they're just so violent. They're always... And I was telling him, I said, I absolutely understand what you're saying. I said, I just want you to know that on the left, they say the exact thing about the people on the right. I mean, that's the, you know what I mean? Because they, they see like, you know, the, you know, white nationalists and, and, you know, people at rallies carrying guns and assaulting, assaulting journalists and stuff. So I said, I understand what you're saying, but the problem is, that the other side sees you exactly the same way and neither side can talk to the other one about it. So there's the problem. The problem is not whether you're right or wrong. Yeah, you, you could write a paper on how violent the left is and like get an A on that paper, but it doesn't make anything any better because somebody could write the paper about people on the left and people on the right being so violent and they get an A on that paper and until the people on the left and the people on the right learn to talk to each other and figure out how to get out of it, being right's not enough. Yeah. Being right's not enough. I mean, it's the wow. same way you can, I can, I can play the right notes and make terrible music, right? There's a lot of wrong ways to play the right notes. <laughs> it's like music, music or being American. Music is more than just getting the notes right. Once getting the, having the right notes is the beginning. Yeah. Then you got to go play the right notes the right way. Well, having your facts right is the beginning. That's not the end of it because your facts right doesn't mean now you can clobber me over the head with it. You're an idiot. <laughs> this and this and this. That's not the use of. That's not how you're supposed to use things that are correct. In the same way, I got the right notes with Steve Miller. I can't. I can't play those notes with all the stops open, you know, on the B3 and the Leslie screaming like all day long. I got to play the notes the right way. You got to, you have to have your facts the right way. You have to have your correct facts in a way that makes things better for everybody. You can't clobber me over the head with it. And then yeah, truth sure. is the thing that you think of as the truth is really, it's just your version of the truth from where you sit. It's, it's, it's your perception, which is a, it's, it's an educated word for your opinion, but right. opinions sometimes are the truth, but not always. And you have to know that there's a chance that either 
you're right, but you're partially right, right? If you're on the ba- if you're in the basement, you can only describe the house from the basement, right? Yeah. You may be right, but you're probably contradicting the person in the attic. <laughs> yeah. Probably contradicting the person standing on the porch in the sunlight. Yeah. And yeah. until those two people learn to talk to each other, uh, their being right can make things worse. Mm-hmm. I think your being right is the only version that works, right? right. Those are legal, man. Those are legal. <laughs> it's like he's from Europe. He's as illegal as he is, but ICE is not about to kick his door in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a I have a, a a person, a handyman that comes over, and uh, he works, you know, on our stuff here at at our house in Franklin. And he's Mexican, but he's a citizen, right? And he gets more scrutiny. Like he's he's going to our lake place before, and he gets down there. Sometimes people are following him. What are you doing down here? What are you doing in that house? You don't live here. He oh, gets, wow. yeah, he yeah. gets more scrutiny, and he's an American citizen than like my. I won't say who they are because I, I don't want to. You know what I mean? European friends that aren't here legally that own businesses and have people show them how to fill out the forms so that they don't show that they're illegal. <laughs> like the right. problem is the problem is not that illegal people are here uh you know without the proper paperwork. The problem is that we're only worried about the South American ones. Right? There's people people come in overstay their visas all the time. Mm-hmm. Everybody that comes here from Canada don't go back on time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? People from all over the place. Right, right. But to say, well, we need strong borders gives you a way of like being racially biased without calling it that. Well, you should want strong borders. Joseph, you should want strong. Well, I do. But I think we have more than one border. <laughs> I, I think hear you. one, I think not everybody's coming from the South. A lot of people coming on airplanes, they just stay like, you know, yeah. when it starts going after everybody, then we can have a more balanced conversation, right? When police, yes. are, when police are kicking the doors in in dorm rooms, you know what I mean? Then it's more even rather than just going into like the poor neighborhood and ICE kicks those doors. I mean, I'm sorry, not ICE, but SWAT teams kick those doors in. It's like people don't only use drugs in poor communities. So right. I have to at the end of the year and we look at the statistics like why do poor people why do you know poor black people use so many drugs well it's like we're playing basketball and you're only calling fouls on a certain segment (laughs) of the athletes of course at the end of the year it looks like this segment of athletes so many. but you know a person you can't say that in college nobody would say that in college they're not buying and selling and using drugs of course they are and they're drinking too and they can afford Truthfully, if you can afford to go to a high expensive college, you can afford more expensive drugs, right? But there's no SWAT teams kicking in dorm rooms and raiding raiding uh fraternities. They're not. Right, right. And yeah. when that when that happens, that kid that goes in front of the judges, you know, the parent is gonna have a really good lawyer. They probably know the DEA. You know what I mean? Like I in this neighborhood where I am, like 
some kids got in trouble in in uh on spring break right down in florida and like all the kids knew the former da right so the former da had you know well if this happens you do x y and z well if you're poor you don't have that that's right right you go and you get like a court appointed attorney who's either never seen your case or just saw it and then the the state has the district attorney who has the power of the state to make you guilty. Well, of course, you know, you wind up pleading to something and, yeah. you know, and maybe you just get probation. But once you have a felony on your record, you know, there goes your driver's license. There goes your ability to vote. There goes your ability for public assistance. There goes your ability uh, for all of these things that you need. Yes. Almost the only thing left is something illegal. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people are like, you see a person who they rob a convenience store. That's a good a point. Them, they're not rob. A lot of them aren't robbing convenience stores just because, man, it'd be really cool to rob a convenience store. <laughs> but a lot of them, they have kids and they are ex-felons, right? That, going. Sure. That can't get a job, uh, uh, can't get public assistance, can't... Uh, vote can't represent themselves but they but they still need pampers right they still need pampers so yes you know. i just had to plug in my computer no sure. problem no problem I, at all. I just glanced up and i'm like i'm at seven percent battery <laughs> <laughs> so i want to make sure i didn't cut you off i've been that person before but, I mean, it's, it's a lot of people don't know a lot of people don't know that right and it's easy it, it makes uh, especially social justice becomes a tough subject because they go, well, was he selling the weed? And you go, well, yeah. Well, then if you do the crime, you should do the time, right? But if you're only looking for the crimes in one segment of society, that's not, that ain't right. It's like, it's like playing basketball and only calling fouls on, you know, certain people, right? Well, did he foul them? Well, then if he fouled them, then he should be out of the game. But he fouled them too, Right. <laughs> And you're not, nobody's calling fouls on these people. Like you, I got nobody, you. Yeah. yeah, nobody's nobody's going to Harvard and and UT or or Vanderbilt and nobody's. There's no SWAT teams kicking those doors in, and they're drinking, smoking, cocaine, and they're doing every they're doing everything that people are doing in every segment of society. There's drugs in every segment of society, but the arrests are only happening here, and that's unfortunate. It is. Um, I, and I'm, I'm really, I'm just struck by how you use, you're using your platform, you know, very well. To, I'm trying. Uh, yeah. You know, my, my, my parents, so we, when we were growing up, they would ask us, you know, from time to time, my mom would say, so what have you been up to? And, uh, you know, that we love Billy Cobham, the drummer. And at one time he was doing like 250 push-ups a day. So we were like, we're doing 250 push-ups a day when we were young, you know, and we're, you know, I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm doing 250 push-ups a day. I'm running three miles a day. I'm practicing so-and-so hours a day. And, and then she let, let you finish. And she go, well, what does, what does any of that have to do with me? Right. Because she's basically asking, what are you doing to make the world better? Not just what are you doing for yourself? So that was always what she was working for us to do is to play, to be good examples 
to make other people better, to help other people, uh, to be, yeah, good examples to other people. So people, when we grew up and some would like, there's a story that somebody came and saw Victor play or maybe Victor and Roy play and they were, my mom was there and they were, Mrs. Wooten, aren't you, aren't you so proud? Your sons are so talented. And she would say, well, first, I don't just have two sons. I have five sons and they're all equally as talented. She said, but that, that's not the part that makes me proud that they can do something, that they're good at something they've been doing their whole life. She said, said playing music is all they've ever done. By now they ought to be good at it. <laughs> she said, but, she's, but she would follow it up. She said, but if you tell me that you look up to them, or if you tell me they've been a good example, or if you tell me that they helped you in some kind of way, she said, that makes me proud. She said, because that's, that's the part that I worked on. But somebody who's good at something that they've done their whole life, that doesn't make me proud because by now they ought to be good at it. So she had a very realistic, uh, grounding, great example way. Yeah. And, and she, it was easy to follow in that example because that's how, that's how she lived her life. She was very wise, very confident, uh, made, made great points in ways that you could understand it. Always had these anecdotal stories from stuff that her, her father told her when she was growing up. And she was like, I'm so glad she would say, I'm so glad I grew up poor, she would say, because of all the stuff that she learned that she wouldn't have learned had she grown up privileged. Like the, the, one of the main ones she would say that uh, her dad used to tell her, tell them, when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you look in the mirror, you've already seen the most important person that you're going to meet that day. And then he follow it up with, but you're no more important than anybody else. Which is a great thing to tell young kids who are being told they're better than they actually are mm-hmm. from a young age. I mean, that ruins a lot of kids. All of a sudden you get to the age where you're the same age as everybody else. And now you're not leaps and bounds above everybody else. And you're not getting moved to the front of the line because of your age. That's ruined a lot of kids that got a lot early. And my mom made sure that we had that balance early. Yes. And and we've carried it and we've taken it forward. And now, you know, Victor... Victor does his music camps. He's doing virtual camps this year. I uh, was, he had me speaking to his, there, I think there was 80 some people in the room, maybe 80, 90 people in a Zoom meeting. And, uh, you know, Victor pays it forward. He's humble as can be. All my brothers have music students. They're passionate about speaking music and, and they're not trying to hold any knowledge. They're trying to, to pass it forward, my, my favorite Victor story, no, not my favorite, but this is one that happened maybe a year ago. So Victor, you know, world's greatest bassist, arguably, right? Super humble. So he had just been in whatever the country was, and he had an audience with the Dalai Lama, right? And normally the Dalai Lama sees you for five minutes. The Dalai Lama sat with Victor for long time much i don't know i don't want to get the number wrong but a lot longer than he normally he's intrigued by victor so victor comes home after just speaking with the dalai lama and he has to hurry out to 
go to his music camp to get the camp ready for all of these students. Right? So here's his world's greatest bassist just sat with the Dalai Lama, hurries home to be with these students. And I had just done some gigging with Victor and I had my gear in his garage. And uh, it's the middle of the night and he gets up and leaves the students so he can come back and open his garage for me, right? To get back to his students. So here's, a, here's like the world's greatest bassist has no ego at all that drops it all to go impart some knowledge to these students that, you know, would hang on his every word. And he's, you know, he tries to show them how to be better people, not just better musicians, drops it all to come back to let his brother in his garage, you know, with no, with no pretense. And there's a lot of people who have a lot less ability that are not nearly that humble. Right. Yeah, right. nearly that humble. And that's uh, the, the other thing about Victor's music camp, most of it was built by volunteer work because there's a bunch of people that feel like they know him already and they respect him and they want to be part of what he does. Not because he's a great bass player. Nobody wants to come and like, you know, donate appliances or do free electrical work or do free construction because they really like the way you can blow over giants. giants. (laughs) (laughs) It's because of, uh, it's because of the type of, because of the type of person he is and too many, too many musicians, if there's a lesson to learn from playing music, is don't just work on who you are behind the instrument, right? Work on who you are off of the instrument, because that's really what you, when you get good, that's what you're going to create from. You're going to create from the person that you are. And if you're a person, you know, that doesn't have a lot to offer, then you make music without as much to offer. It's not like music, it's not like music, uh, no, I'll take that, no, I'm gonna go there. The more that, the more that your life has to offer, the more that your music has to offer. And too much, of, too many people only apply their discipline behind the instrument. Then you get off the instrument and you go back to being, you know, whatever that thing is that falls short. And wow. uh, the more, the, the better person you are off the instrument, the more you have to bring to the instrument. Marcus Mariota, who used to be the, the quarterback of the Titans, uh, he played for a coach and his the coach's philosophy is you should be a winner every second of the day, right? You shouldn't be defeated by the messy bed when you get up. So you get up, you fix the bed, right? You go brush your teeth, you clean your toothbrush up, put the toothbrush where it goes and you win his philosophy was win the day. So by the time you get to the field, winning is already your way of doing things. It's not like you're underachieved until it comes till you put the jersey on. Now it's time to focus. So to this day, win, lose, whatever, he gets up, he fixes his bed. Right? And that's a, what a great lesson. So, he, so wherever he goes, he'll be a success some kind of way, whether it comes on the football field or not. I expect him to do well, and and uh, uh, he's in um, Las Vegas now with the with the Raiders. He's going to go somewhere and do well. But even if it, even if his doing well doesn't happen on the football field, he'll be a success somewhere because 
Because he's winning moment to moment to moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. And he's going to land somewhere on his feet well because of who he is and how he does things. And that's the, that's the challenge. Again, the, making music is the intelligent use of space. You can try to get somebody to feel the effects of the intelligent use of space, but there's nothing for them to hang their hat on. You know, uh, um, inspiration is something somebody has to feel. You can't talk them into it. You have to be able to feel that hope that's out there, wherever out there is, or in here, wherever in here is. You have to make them feel it. Space can only be felt, but it's the only thing that gives things meaning. I mean, the only thing that will turn this into a song is the intelligent use of space. Here's in here is every song that's ever been written, right? <laughs> right. But, you know, I'll do this. Nobody sings along because it's not music yet. It's not music yet until you add intelligence. Until you add intelligence and you make use of the order that's in the space. Because space doesn't, it seems like it's just a non-existence. It's not a non-existence. It's just the absence of things. But the absence of things has some rules. Right? If you're going to play music, especially if you're going to share it with other people, then we have to adhere to rhythm. We have to adhere to pitch. Right? Those, are, those are rules of the space. Space has order. It's not just like haphazard. It has order. And the only way that you could adhere to those rules in space is to have a feel for it. Right? You can't talk somebody into good rhythm, but they feel it. You can feel good rhythm if I, right, if I put on a good beat, when everybody does this, they feel it. But I can't talk to you and tell you what a good rhythm is effectively. It's like love, right? If you, if you say I love you to somebody who doesn't believe it already, those are the emptiest words ever spoken. But if somebody believes it already, they're the most beautiful words ever said because they feel it already. Yeah. And that's... That's, that's the challenge. It's the challenge of music. It's the goal of music. But it's also, uh, it's also the best, um, it's the most effective part of music. It's because music can make you feel what needs to be felt better than words can. Better than words can. If you... Yeah. You know, if you, you tell somebody, I love you, you know, I love you, but you, uh, I love you, I do, right? You can make a person feel that. Yeah. You know, easier than just, I love you. No, I really, <laughs> you don't, you don't believe me. Oh, you know I love you. right if you can move some harmonies around if you know some things then you have more tools for your good intent to work yes you know it works musically off the instrument it works just know some stuff have a feel for some other people, know what moves them. Then you can say what needs to be said in a way that they want to join in or a way that inspires them or at least a way that makes them feel respected. 
Those are the things that we need, not just walking around being right all the time. Show me. In my book, I have a quote that says, I said, show me somebody who's right all the time. I'll show you somebody who's uh, probably single with not a lot of friends. Because <laughs> <laughs> you walk around, you just write all the time. That's not it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's not always it. Sometimes it's it, but not always. Well, I. I just wonder if you feel like playing something. I mean, I've kept you for quite a while. And sure. Well, by now you know that you know, you know that I like speaking. Let me turn this speaker off. This little. If you um, if you feel like playing something, then we'll we'll um, we'll we'll top it off with that. But let's do that. Well, this is uh, so. I'll do something. I'll, I'll go on a limb just a bit. So what I do a lot of times when I go when I speak to young people, what I'll do is. I want to show them like the power of their words. And then I want to show them also uh, what I do on the instrument is what we should try to do in life. So, so I, I'll take their words and I'll turn it into a song. And what we do is we try to take what we think and make it for the benefit of everybody. So uh, give me something like just a short phrase with some meaning wow um you know something uh, uh what's a lesson we could take away i gonna make it what's a lesson maybe we could take away from this covid situation Think you've, I think you've already summed that one up. Is we are all in this together. We're all but, in this. Um, okay, so that's, that's a <laughs> but, but let me see. Let me see. Um, what, we can, what we can take from it is um, we need each other. We need each other. That's good. See. Um, okay, let's see how it is. I mean, but what happens there is what we need to try to do when we leave the instrument. Now, then, you know, we're all working with other people's ideas. But we're, what we're trying to do is find the same way I'm finding context for notes that don't necessarily relate to each other. 
when we get out here and we're talking to people that don't think like we do, we're trying to find context between things that don't normally relate to each other. I can make them relate with rhythm and harmony. Out here, it's just respect. It's just respect, right? The person thinks totally different than me. So my thing is to try to let this person not, my thing is not just for him to know what I think, right? Or for me to invalidate what I know is wrong. My thing is for him to be who he is or she, her to be who she is. I am who I am. And we're going to try to create some respect out of where we stand. In the same way, we make these notes relate we're gonna to try to make these people relate. So if you're super conservative, you think the president is the best thing that's ever been, at least I'll try to make you at least know that I don't think that you're crazy for it. I understand it from where you sit, right? I have some concerns, but, but I respect you. And hopefully if I need something from you, I'd like to feel that I could call on you. And if that person says, okay, we've just made the world a little bit more respectful than it was before we met each other, even though he maybe walks off saying, build that wall, build that wall, right? Yeah. But if he respects me when he leaves and maybe will respect me the next time we encounter each other, then we've just, uh, we've just created some context from things that don't relate, a.k.a. we've just made some music. Yeah. As opposed to winning the competition. Because winning the competition creates losers and nobody likes to volunteer to lose. (laughs) (laughs) So true. (laughs) Joseph, I just want to say thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You're doing a good you're doing a good thing. This is a good thing. Thank you. Um it was one of those things that um just called to me for many years Mm -hmm. and then I finally just decided I'm just gonna do it. That's good. And so that's the other thing. Now, that's the other thing I'm recognizing from this pandemic is that it's forcing people to pivot, right? It's forcing me to pivot. Like what I'm starting to realize is like, I've always wanted to find ways to play, but I'm finding out that, especially now that people are sort of, people are just in more of a position to listen now, partially because they have to, but that's just sort of where we can't go out and hear our stuff. So people are a bit more ready to listen to people. So it's forcing people to pivot. And I've done, a, I've done one from you. I did one from Paul Peterson, who's a part of the Peterson family up in, in uh, Minneapolis. Um, I'm getting ready to do one for, so, for uh, a friend, the son of a friend of mine who lives in Vermont and he's doing things with social justice. So I'm going to do a, 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 a Instagram live with him on Thursday. Um, tonight, um, tomorrow night, I'm doing a uh, part of a, a funk fest, not a funk fest, but it's called uh, Funk for Our Lives. And they're doing it for Meals on Wheels. So I'm going to do a, a couple songs from them live but this is where this is where it's moving and it's moving to where we're listening to each other more because we have to and there's an opening because everybody recognizes that we're really divided right now but we also recognize that we don't want to be that way right so once there's a there's a huge potential for somebody 
or some people to show people the way out. I love that. There's mm. an opening. There's an opening. There is. Everything happens for something. And in a jam session, the only this jam session of ideas that we call life, the yeah. only way you know what to do next is by feel. If you have ever been in a jam session, there's no guarantee that this dominant seven with a sharp 11 is going to work when I press these keys, but it feels like it is. And if, if, if I have a good feel for the music, my decisions are either right or the mistake I'm getting ready to make is going to teach me something. Yeah. And that's, that's life, right? You have to have a feel for what's in the space. There's no, there's no rule book for the stuff that you can't see. Right, you have to have a feel for it. Yeah. But you make your next plan based off of knowledge and good intentions. And if you have knowledge and good intentions, two things, one of two things is going to happen. It's either going to turn out right or you're going to learn something valuable for for the mistake you just made. And that's the re- that's the recipe. That's the recipe, being knowledgeable and having good intentions. Having good intentions without, without the right amount of knowledge may have you put, a, put your hand on a pregnant woman's belly who's not pregnant, right? And give her a compliment on her pregnancy that's not there, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> now that's uh, an example I'll probably never forget. <laughs> I didn't forget it. That's, that's a mistake you only make once. <laughs> we only make that one it's not because i was a bad guy that's right. i just learned good intentions are not right enough they have to they have to rest on a on a on a uh, foundation of knowledge otherwise you can make huge missteps with good intentions <laughs> well <laughs> with that <laughs> well i'll let you go have a sunday afternoon with family and go have a good time for a little while but well i i appreciate it i've really i've really enjoyed it and i hope uh this is a really this is a really good a really good thing that you're doing and it drummers do it guitar players do it i'm not sure why keyboard players don't do it yeah can't really put my finger on it (laughs) well the only way only thing i can think of i think when you learn to play drums you're learning to play drums for the benefit of an ensemble. Same thing with guitar. You're learning to play guitar. You know, even if you're an egotistical guitar, you're, lear- you're learning to play with other people. Right. But piano is a thing. You don't always learn to play piano to play with other people, right? That's right. One of the reasons why a lot of times keyboard players have terrible time because we've learned pieces and it, when the hard part comes, we just adjust the tempo to get it all in. And then we have right. to play with other people and we find out our time's not that good. And keyboard playing oftentimes is a very individualistic thing. And yes. I was fortunate enough, I was born into a rhythm section. So I was born, I mean, I, I learned to play solo later. I learned to play with the ensemble first because I was born in. But a lot of keyboard players, you know what I mean, we're the, person, we're the people that learn to play on our own, in our own room without other people. And then we got the gig because we had gear. we got the gig because we had gear and we still came in in that individualistic mindset right 
Yeah. Like we came in, we're the ones with the gear. We're doing all the sequencing. You're singing a little bit. You're playing guitar a little bit. But you know what I mean? And right. so we're generally not in the mindset of networking. Guitar yeah. players, they'll talk about, yeah, I have a song. So it has a maple neck and I got the frets reworked and it has a song. So pick up. <laughs> and then, it, oh man, well, I have a 57 track. It's got a maple shell and, blah, 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 blah. and the keyboard players. You know what I mean? <laughs> we set up, we tear down, and we're out. Yeah. Right? And, you know, we, there's, seldom do we meet other keyboard players because keyboard players are the people that I know the least. I know lots of guitar players, bassists, vocalists, because they're the ones I have to call. I'm always the keyboard player. You yeah. know, very seldom am I going to call another keyboard player. So what? it's the long version of saying what you're doing is a really good thing because it's not a thing that comes natural to keyboard players. Yeah. Thanks yeah. For, Thanks for, so much for pointing that out. And uh, I, I appreciate the support. I do. Really well, do. you know, anytime you need support, you call me. You got my number now. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I get the feeling we'll do, we'll do some more talking. Because I love it, Joseph. In this jam session we call like this jam <laughs> session of ideas. <laughs> That's, uh, I love that metaphor. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, again, Amy, thank you for... Thank you for calling me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do something that I love to do, which is talk. <laughs> I love talking if it's, if it's constructive and it's a thing that people don't do enough. And uh, uh, if we talk to each other more, we could get through a lot more of our most difficult problems. Most of, I agree. The, most of the worst problems are there because we don't, don't talk about it. We should just go ahead, have the argument, you know, have the discussion, get past it, and then we'll be done. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yep. Well, you're doing a good thing, and I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Have a great gig um, the rest of the week. And, Thank you uh, so much. Yeah, bless you. Stay safe. I will. You too. Stay healthy. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be back gigging again before too long. Yeah, I'd love to see you at that Soul Vibes Earth, Wind, and Fire coming up. Man, that's that's going to really be great. That's going to be fun. All right. Thank you, Amy. You take care. Thank you. All right.